full circle. Full circle. Hi, I'm Miss Wanda, and this is Full Circle. Girlfriend, this is a place where you and I can connect. It's a show that embraces a 360-degree look at womanhood. It's our voice, our perspective. It's what we care about, and it's how we feel. Empowerment through conversation is what it is. This is Full Circle. Family, welcome to another edition of Full Circle, a very special edition of Full Circle, because today Full Circle turns five years old. Yes, woo, all right, yes. Five years old today. It was the second Saturday of April in 2018 when we kicked this whole thing off. And I want to just thank you for rocking with me for five years, for all of your comments, your questions, your emails, following the show on social media, the podcast with 13,000 plays, and sharing it with all of your friends and family. I certainly appreciate you could not be doing any of this without you. So I just want to give you a special thank you, thank you. Thank you for five years and so much more to come. Make sure you keep rocking with Miss Wanda because we've got some great shows in the pipeline like the one today with my amazing guest, Dr. Sarah Webb. Fifth anniversary show. I wanted to have a very special conversation and I'm super excited that my guest said yes to being on the show. I have followed her on social media. I came across her post. I don't remember how, but I came across her post. Really interesting work phenomenal topic and we're talking colorism today with Dr. Sarah Webb. Dr. Sarah Webb is no joke. She is out here doing this work. She started colorism healing in 2013 and um, she is out here doing this work. So let me tell you a little bit about Dr. Sarah and colorism healing. So Dr. Sarah Webb helps companies and institutions advance their JETI missions. And if you may not have heard JETI, it's kind of an emerging term where it puts justice in the DEI lens. So justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. She helps companies raise their awareness, shifting attitudes, and taking action to dismantle colorism And let me tell you more about her personally. Dr. Sarah, first of all, she has some Bay Area roots, y'all, so there's that. She is a public speaker and corporate trainer. Again, she's helping those companies raise that awareness. Her mission is to raise critical awareness about colorism as a global issue, to facilitate healing and social change. And she has three pillars that we're going to talk about how she goes about doing this work. But I'm not going to belabor introducing Dr. Sarah to you, but I'm going to tell you right now, you may want to go ahead and follow her on social media everywhere at Colorism Healing. We are going to have an amazing conversation. Dr. Sarah, thank you so much for joining me via Zoom today. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to have you here. Why don't you introduce yourself to the Full Circle family and then we're going to jump right into conversation. Yes. So, I am a dark-skinned African-American woman with natural hair, 
Some might call it type four. I just call it Afro hair. I'm originally from Louisiana. However, I have lived in the Bay Area, I have tons of family who were born and raised in the Bay Area as well. And I'm currently in Costa Rica visiting for a period of time. And then now my permanent address is Texas. So I'm kind of a nomad. And I started Colorism Healing in 2013, but I will say I first started blogging about colorism in 2011. And so through that initial two years of working on colorism, starting to research it, I realized that there had to be a more specific, dedicated, platform to talking about it. And so this is the 10 year anniversary. So speaking of anniversaries, today, it's not today specifically, but 2023 is the 10 year anniversary of Colorism Healing. So I'm really excited to reflect on the past, but also, you know, look forward to the next decade. Yes, absolutely. Now I saw your TED talk. I think that was one of the first things that I saw when I discovered your Instagram. And you talked about this experience that you had as a child in regards to colorism and your family dynamic. Is that where the seed was planted to do this work or how did you get into wanting to do this work you were a professor you left your full-time gig to pursue doing this work so how did that happen yeah so i have experienced colorism my entire life and long before i could remember so the story for anyone who hasn't seen the ted talk i was about five years old and some extended relatives like great aunts or something were complimenting my older sister on how pretty she was my older sister is several shades lighter than me we're saying, oh, she's so pretty. She's so cute. She'll, she's going to break some hearts one day. You know, you have to watch out for her, you know, speaking to my mom. And my mom said she overheard me at five say, well, that's because she's light skinned. And so I, I like that story. I don't like that it happened to me, but I think that story helps people see how young it starts. But also if I was able to say that at five, that means I had already been seeing it, right? For me to be able to make that connection in my head at like five years old, that means I had seen enough of that pattern to know what was going on, right? Um, and, but I had struggled with it in silence because as a young girl, if I thought to bring it up, people would say, oh, you just, you don't be too sensitive. Don't worry about what other people think or, you know, but you're beautiful and you just have to believe it. So people were very dismissive of it. And I also didn't have language at that age, right? And so some of what I do now is helping people say like, oh, there's actually a thing that's going on here. Like there's words for it. But what made me break my silence was when I was teaching high school. In my hometown of Baton Rouge, it was a predominantly black high school. And I saw my students and heard my students saying things about their skin tone. Like I'm less proud of myself because I got too dark over the summer, or I don't like this photo of me because I look too black, or I wish I was light skinned like my mom. So that made me realize that what I had gone through as a child throughout my youth one, wasn't just me. And two, most importantly, it wasn't just going to go away on its own. Right. It wasn't just going to magically stop with my generation. It was continuing to infect a younger generation. And so I said, well, if we don't actually do something about this, it's going to continue. And so I started blogging to help raise awareness, start sharing my experience and that sort of thing. And doing the work around colorism healing is what inspired me to go back to get my PhD because I finally felt I had something passionate enough about to study and research more deeply. And so I thought, you know, I could be a college professor, teach, you know, writing courses and some courses on colorism and literature, African-American literature, all that stuff, and still continue colorism healing as like part of my passion on the side, you know, incorporated into my research as a professor. But as I got deeper into, you know, the tenure track process, I was like, I want a little more freedom 
freedom to be able to focus on colorism healing solely in precisely the ways that I want to, right? So not having to go through specific gatekeepers or have certain protocols or red tape around how my work could show up in the world. And so that's when in 2022, I took the leap to do colorism healing full time. And that has been a phenomenal thing for you. I mean, you've been in a lot of different spaces doing this work since you took that leap. I mean, before, but now that you've taken the leap, it seems like yeah. it's, in a pun intended, grown by leaps and bounds, right? <laughs> I want to start at the very beginning of two things, defining colorism and talking about the types of colorism that there is. So colorism is a social system that places greater value and status and privilege for people who have lighter skin tones. And oftentimes they also have like a looser curl texture, hair texture, or thinner features. And at the same time, it stigmatizes and marginalizes and discriminates against people with darker skin tones. I emphasize that it's a social system because the most common conversation around colorism is on the level of bullying. Like, oh, this individual person was mean to me or this group of kids were mean to me. But colorism has systemic consequences in terms of wealth and income disparities, healthcare outcomes, employment opportunities, who gets hired, who's perceived as more threatening by police officers, who's perceived as more innocent versus being perceived as criminal in the justice system or in courts. And so it has far-reaching impact beyond just being teased on the playground, right? And saying that, those things are also important, right? And so colorism, and one of the reasons why people trivialize colorism or dismiss it as less important is because they think it only happens among Black people. Mm. But colorism is global. It happens across all cultures, on every continent, on the globe. And in some places, it's actually more explicit even than it is in the United States, right? When you look at skin bleaching ads and commercials and billboards that are actively and explicitly saying, your life will be better. You will, you are more likely to get the job if you use this cream to lighten your skin, right? But here in the United States, a lot of my fellow African-Americans think, oh, it's just us. And white people see us as all the same, but that's very much not true. And so two types of colorism are the intra-racial colorism, where it is, yes, for example, an African-American person discriminating against a darker-skinned African-American person, or it could be a Chinese person or a Southeast Asian person discriminating against someone of their own race or ethnicity. But it can also happen across different racial groups, and so that's interracial colorism. And so, yes, white people can perpetuate colorism. And in many places around the globe, white people are responsible for planting those seeds in the first place, right? Not in every historical instance, but certainly here in the West, in many colonized places around the globe, it was white people because they had to sort of perpetuate this notion that they were better. They also used the idea that being more like them was better, right? And so we see it being more like us in terms of how you talk, being more like us in terms of how you dress, but also being more like us in terms of how you actually look. So that's your hair texture, eye colors, and facial features. And so that dynamic, that hierarchy that exists, again, it affects things like self-esteem and personal perceptions, but it definitely plays into our ability to navigate society and have access to resources and capital and all that sort of thing. I've been sitting here jotting down some notes because there's so many places I want to go. So let's talk about what does colorism look like in the corporate space? So I talk about the school to workplace pipeline. And so one of the things we have to realize is that 
they're even before people enter the workforce, they've already encountered colorism, either benefiting them if they're lighter skin or make marginalizing them if they're darker skin. And so when people say, oh, well, we're just hiring the best talent or we're just hiring the people who apply, that's not a justice lens. And that's why I'm glad you clarified what JEDI means is that the J in J-E-D-I is for justice. And so any employer or workplace or organization or institution that cares about justice, you have to realize the barriers to entering the workforce in the first place. But once someone gets through that educational pipeline and they are entering the workforce, starting to apply for jobs, people with darker skin are facing discrimination because of stereotypes and biases about their intelligence, about their level of competence, about their perceived professionalism, quote unquote, and about their trustworthiness, right? Or their, you know, integrity. And so again, all the negative stereotypes that we are familiar with that are racial stereotypes and racist against Black people, they are exacerbated and exaggerated the darker your skin tone, right? Or the, you know, more Afro-textured hair that you have. And then once you're in the workforce, so you get hired, there's research that shows darker skinned people are earning less income their wages tend to be lower as well, right? So that could be a, for a number of factors. Yes, it could be that implicit bias of, oh, well, my perception of your worth as the person who's setting your salary or setting your income is that it's lower than someone who's non-Black or someone who's white or someone who's lighter skinned. And on top of that, when we look at being promoted are giving you know, bonus opportunities, being mentored, employee evaluations, and just also discrimination, like even when you're on the job. And so the EEOC, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, which is a government agency that handles discrimination in, at the workplace specifically, has handled multiple cases on colorism specifically. And so some examples of cases that they've settled have been employees that were told to relocate to a different location and on a black side of town because their skin was too dark to supposedly serve the white clientele on another side of town right so you're, you're too dark to be appealing to this white clientele or in a similar very similar case being told that they should stay out of the sun or like try to lighten their skin in order to be appealing to the clientele also being called names by managers and supervisors such as charcoal and being terminated when they try to report that behavior, right? And so a lot of the same stuff that we see happening around racism in the workplace, there's a parallel and equal manifestation happening based on this particular shade of someone's skin in the workplace as well. If I'm understanding you correctly, it sounds like racism and colorism are two separate things. Like they're not automatically one thing. Right. A person can experience racism and not be experiencing colorism, right? So I often ask people to identify whether the discrimination is because of what people know of your racial identity or is it because of what they're actually seeing when they interact with you, right? And so it, sometimes it's both at the same time. So it can be racism and colorism happening simultaneously, but very oftentimes it's also not the same thing. And so I call racism a checkbox form of discrimination. So you can experience racism without anyone ever seeing you. If you fill out a form, if you have a ethnic sounding name on, an, on a job application, right? So even before they see your face, your racial identity, maybe you list that you're a member of the, you know, Black Lawyers Guild or something, right? So people know what category you use for yourself. They say, oh yes, you identify as Black. And so we're going to perceive you or discriminate against you based on that. Colorism is once you actually get to the interview, 
or whether it's on, you know, via Zoom or in person, and they're like, oh, you have this big Afro and really dark skin. And so that's going to add on an additional layer of bias, right? Whereas if you're lighter skin and someone's maybe open to hiring Black people. And so I also talk about what we call monochromatic diversity, which is when companies or organizations, they have a lot of people of different races, a lot of people of different ethnicities, but they all are lighter skin individuals. And so a lot of companies and institutions and schools are trying to increase their diversity, right? But they're focusing on, again, that check box diversity, right? Like what you put on the census or what you fill out on an application form. So as long as you say you're Black on paper, then they're like, oh, you count towards our diversity goal. But in the interview process and when they're recruiting and when they're, you know, giving out scholarships or promoting people or giving them raises, they're more inclined to lean towards the Black people with lighter skin or the Southeast Asian people with lighter skin, right? And so we have to consider both and, right? Like, yes, we have a lot of Black people in this organization, but if they're all very light-skinned, like Beyonce or Terrence Howard or Will Smith, then we have a lot more work to do in terms of creating diversity that's not just on one side of the skin tone spectrum. That is really interesting to hear you say that and really eye-opening that companies are, you know, like you said, trying to fill their diversity quota, but probably not recognizing or realizing that there still is a a slant to it. There's a pattern. So (laughs) it's just interesting to hear. I never thought about it. I did see your talk on monochromatic diversity last week or week before. When I saw you talk about that, I was I was blown away because I don't think companies, organizations think about it in that way. Like you said, they're just trying to check the box of, oh, hey, yeah, we did. We did hire, you know, we did interview this many uh, black people or we did outreach to these communities. But what was the (laughs) result of that? That's good stuff. Monochromatic diversity fam. Dr. Sarah (laughs) Webb coined that. You got to check out her talk on that, especially if you are someone in leadership. Yes. That could be something that can start to help you turn the corner to true diversity in your right. in your particular uh, sphere of influence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is yes. good conversation. We're going to take a quick break, family. When we come back more with Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism Healing, it's full circle, fifth year anniversary. Keep it right here, fam. We'll be right back after this. It's full circle. Like and share our Facebook page at full circle. Empowering women one conversation at a time. This is Full Circle with Miss Wanda. We're back, family. Thank you so much for staying with the program. This is Full Circle. I'm your host, Miss Wanda. It is the fifth anniversary of Full Circle. I'm so glad that you're here joining the conversation. We have a guest that has joined in with Dr. Webb in my conversation, someone that I respect in the community. And when I thought about having this show, I definitely thought about having her on because she's so vocal in the community. She's such a presence and she's had a lot of different experiences. That is Miss Christy Ketchum. She is the founder the Sacramento Sister Circle. She's out here doing amazing work in the community. And I wanted Christy to join in this conversation with us. So Christy, thank you for joining us via Zoom. Also for being here and for lending uh, whatever time you can spend with us to have this important conversation about colorism. Family, if you're just joining us, our guest today is Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism Healing. Before we went to break, we were talking about what colorism looks like in the corporate culture. And Dr. Webb was sharing with us this term that she coined, monochromatic diversity. What she enlightened us about was that companies can, and sometimes they do, 
you know, especially after George Floyd was murdered and companies started, you know, having these diversity statements and, oh, we, you know, we stand with the black community and all that kind of stuff. And so they started development or the creation of a lot more diversity positions. So a lot of companies started having DEI coordinators, DEI positions. As companies started filling these positions or started making hires to make their companies look more diverse, a lot of times the diversity still only had one lens and that was a very monochromatic lens or picture of what their leadership or what their diverse workforce looked like. Like a lot of people may have been more of a lighter hue of skin color, may have had more Eurocentric features. And so while companies were like, hey, we're doing the good thing, there still is more work to be done in that area. And so that's what Dr. Webb was sharing with us. I want to jump right back into conversation more about the corporate culture in terms of colorism. And Dr. Webb, I want to ask about, we were just, Christy just mentioned, or we had just mentioned something off air. Anti-blackness. Yes, anti-black, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Anti-blackness, anti-racism, and colorism. And how do those two intersect or do they intersect? So... With my current series, um, I tell people our anti-racism work doesn't include colorism, then it's not actually anti-racist. And so any anti-racist strategy that does not have a colorism lens included in it is actually perpetuating the same system that it claims to fight. And what I mean by that is when you have a group of people who all identify as Black, but you don't have a lens of colorism, what you're doing is creating opportunity for those with the lightest skin tones and the straightest hair textures and the thinnest or more Eurocentric features to rise and advance at the expense or at the exclusion of those with darker skin and more Afro hair textures, right? And so without the lens of colorism, all of that so-called anti-racist work is going to recreate a society and a hierarchy that looks exactly the same as the current racial hierarchy. And so when we have anti-racism work that says, oh, well, as long as you identify as Black, then you, then your advancement counts for the entire race, right? That's problematic because oftentimes what we see is those with the lightest skin tones, those are, are often of mixed race heritage, for example, who are disproportionately receiving and benefiting from any racial progress that we have. Mm-hmm. And so when we have racial progress, when we have advances in equity, it is not evenly distributed across the entire race, right? And that could be for many reasons. I focus on the area of colorism, but there are also other intersections such as class status, such as disability status, right? Such as, you know, black men versus black women, right? And so we have to always have that intersectional lens in our anti-racist strategies. Um, and in terms of anti-blackness, I think It's an umbrella term, but in order to be strategic about how we respond to that, we have to be specific and nuanced, right? So anti-Blackness can take many forms. It could be in the form of language discrimination, music, demonizing certain cultural ways, cultural food ways. It could be demonizing hair or demonizing other aspects that are born of Black culture and or Black phenotypes, right? And so when we are trying to create a policy, for example, it's hard to write a policy that says don't be anti-Black. But you can write a policy that specifically says we will not discriminate on the basis of language or dialects. We will not discriminate on the basis of hair texture or hair type or hairstyle, right? And so when we have these various lenses, it helps us, one, to fully understand the intersections of the problem, and then, two, be more strategic in how we go about solving it. Really interesting that you bring up that point in 
looking at anti-racist strategies, right, and, and the way that we roll those out or the way companies approach that. It's important for them to consider the entire possibilities of discrimination versus just the one. And, and we hear, again, we hear that that's a key term that we hear, anti-racist, anti-racist strategies and things like that. But it's taking that deeper dive look. I think that helps when we, um, when companies are talking about really truly becoming a diverse organization, looking at all corners. I wanna talk about intersectionality and colorism. And you have some recommendations for brands and businesses that I think are key for our listeners to hear about. So let's talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so intersectionality was coined by Kimberly Crenshaw, who's a law professor. And she did it in response to GM, General Motors, a group of Black women, Black employees, Black women employees, have filed a lawsuit against General Motors for discrimination. And the courts threw out or dismissed their lawsuit, one, because they couldn't sue on the basis of race because General Motors had hired Black men. And they couldn't sue on the basis of gender because General Motors had hired women. They just happened to be white women. And so Kimberly Crenshaw was saying, if we don't have an intersectional lens, think about how many Black women exist on the planet, right? So without an intersectional lens, that entire swath of the globe is falling through the cracks and not able to have their particular unique situations um, acknowledged, much less rectified. And so intersectionality in terms of colorism we know like all issues, it affects people differently based on their gender. I think that's one of the primary intersections that people talk about in terms of how it influences them. And so there are certain things in terms of how we see dark-skinned Black men, oftentimes the negative impact on them is that they are often seen as more criminal or too aggressive or too strong, right? When we talk about police killings and police brutality, men like Michael Brown and George Floyd and Eric Garner and Alton Sterling from my hometown, they weren't just black men. They were dark skinned black men with full features and they were often larger in stature, right? And so that exacerbates the negative stereotypes that officers or legal professionals might have. And so dark skinned black women oftentimes face similar stereotypes. However, when we look at what's acceptable in terms of masculine identity, it's more acceptable to be dark skinned and masculine than to be dark skinned and feminine, right? And so when we have representation of dark skinned people, it's most often a darker skinned man or a darker skinned masculine presenting person. And very often the woman or the more feminine presenting person is either not black at all if we're being honest, or they are lighter skinned, right? Or at the very least lighter than the male counterpart, right? And I'm not just talking about in romantic situations, although you can very much see that playing out. But even when they are just pairing colleagues, I, I see this in commercials and TV shows. Sometimes I wish I couldn't see it because then I would enjoy watching TV a lot more. But just commercials, right? And looking at the colleagues and how they cast the male colleague, they're perfectly fine with the male colleague being a dark-skinned Black man. But the female colleague, again, is either lighter skinned or not Black at all. And so when we see representation in leadership or, you know, even biases about what's okay to be professionalism in terms of being aggressive or being assertive, right? It's like more acceptable if it's coming from a man, but a dark-skinned woman is just difficult to deal with, right? Or she's a little abrasive or she's so angry, right? And you're more likely to have that said about you if you are darker skinned and a woman than if you are dark skinned and a man, or if you are light skinned and a black woman, right? Other intersections though might be things like 
hair texture. That is a, a second huge intersection when people talk about their experiences of colorism. So a lot of my clients that I've worked with individually have talked about, it wasn't just that I was dark skinned, is that I also had this, you know, really coily hair texture, right? I had this Afro hair texture. Or I've also had people say, well, I was dark skinned, but I always had long hair. People always complimented me on my hair. And so we know in the workplace and in corporate environments, because white people position themselves as the standard of quote-unquote professionalism, they associate their hair type with being professional. And so Black people who have straighter hair or who have hair that can be pulled back in a bun easily or slipped back easily are seen as more professional. And those who have afros or afro-textured hair, or even if you wear it in bantu knots or in braids or locks, right, you get discriminated against because you are, again, perceived as being less professional. And thus we have things like the Crown Act, Right. Yep. That has come to be because of situations like that, trying to break down as many barriers as possible and allowing us to be who we are and show up in the workplace. What I do with my hair has nothing to do with my ability to Correct. perform. What are some of the other recommendations you would give to people in leadership that can help them and their companies or organizations turn the tide in terms of really taking a good look at colorism and how they can combat it? One of the first things I'll say, and this is partly from my background in academia as well, but if we don't measure something, we can't address it. And so a lot of the reasons why colorism has continued to go unaddressed is because people in their HR practices are not accounting for these intersectional differences. And so that could be as simple as having a company-wide survey, right? To see, like, yes, we have people who have all these racial and ethnic identities, but what other identities do they have? How else might they identify? What other forms of their identity or forms of how they show up at work do they feel are not being seen or not being represented or being marginalized in some way? And so finding ways to collect that information, collect that data that goes beyond the broad broad general categories of are you black, right? Or are you a woman? And thinking about how you can be more nuanced. But then the second thing is to assume that colorism is always present. This is important. Talk about unconscious bias. We talk about implicit bias. If you are hiring people, if you are evaluating people for promotions or raises, assume that color biases are always at play. And so you have to compensate for that and mitigate that. A couple of ways to do it is to have a panel of diverse people to sort of ensure that there are likely to be different perspectives, although that's not even a guarantee in and of itself, but also do blind reviews of things, remove names from things, remove photographs from things, and try to, as much as possible, uh, mitigate the bias that you should know is baked into the process already. Yeah, I work for the state government here in California, and that's one of the things that our HR department on a global scale, the entire governing body over our individual departments is trying to really move towards those types of steps. And, and it, you know, it's going to take a little work just for nuances of union and things like that, but trying to, as much as possible, eliminate things from the applications that were required years ago. Um, things and making some of the things optional. For instance, the page about your ethnicity is now optional. Like you don't have to do it. Whereas before, you know, maybe 15, 20 years ago, you had to indicate on that box. So they were trying to make steps to scrub out as much personal information as they can about the candidates so that we as hiring managers and supervisors can go in and really take a good look at the person 
and their skills versus the name on the application. And so that's one of the things that we can do across the board if you're someone in leadership is really trying to, as much as you can, dismantle some of those stereotypes by being as fair as you can within your within whatever legal right you have, right? Is to be able to cover up the names and be able to do those things in a workplace so that you can really bring in the best talent no matter what they look like. And so I like those suggestions of, you know, trying to turn the corner in terms of selecting who the best candidate is so we can bring the best talent in without respect of the the skin. Too bad you couldn't do blind interviews, you know, like just, you know, now that the world is in Zoom, like don't turn on your camera. Just, <laughs> you know, too bad you couldn't do that as well. Family, if you're just joining us, we're talking to Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism Healing, having this in-depth conversation about colorism. We've heard it. We've heard the term. And that's one of the things that when Dr. Webb and I first spoke, I was like, yeah, we we know it. We know it exists. But it's something that we don't really like to discuss. We don't really like to talk about. We know it's there. And, you know, Dr. Webb shared her experience about being a young child and having that impact us. And we are going to move into more personal aspects of colorism. I want to ask one more question about, and I'm not sure if this is a workplace or corporate question, but how does privilege fit into the conversation about colorism? I'm so glad you asked this question. (laughs) For one, a lot of times the conversation about colorism stops at the discrimination of dark-skinned people. That's only one half of the coin. It is also the privileging and the um, greater access that people get for being lighter skinned, right? And so when we talk about something being systemic, right, let's use systemic racism because people seem to be a lot more comfortable talking about systemic racism. We know that it does not go both ways, okay? (laughs) Yes, a Black person might dislike, be mean to, you know, discriminate against a white person, right, or a non-Black person, but they are not completely inverting or overturning a social system that privileges those white people. And so on a different scale and a parallel a parallel system to racism is colorism. And so when we have in the workplace, I use Kamala Harris as an example of this because it was asked in a webinar that I did for a company um, saying, well, you know, if she's not running against dark-skinned women, then how is it colorism, right? Because there were no other dark-skinned women running for vice president. And I said, well, because privilege compounds over an entire lifetime. Colorism is not about just that isolated event. Colorism is about all of the doors that had opened for you that allowed you to be in that room in the first place. So if we look at, you know, upper management, a vice president who was a lighter-skinned person and say, well, there weren't any dark-skinned women who applied. So the fact that I got hired is not colorism. I beg to differ. It was colorism and the advantages and the benefits and the uh, benefit of the doubt, right? All these opportunities being perceived as the smart girl in school, right? Or being perceived as the good girl in the family. Like all these things that start from birth in many cases that have propped you up, that have bolstered your journey, that have sort of, again, opened doors and removed certain obstacles from your past that an equally qualified, equally talented, and often cases more educated, more qualified, right? The research has shown, Ms. Wanda, that in interview situations, hiring managers or employers have relied more heavily on skin tone 
than years of experience and levels of education. Like that bias, that implicit bias that assumes a lighter skinned candidate is inherently the better candidate overrides the documented levels of education and work experience. And so to get that first internship over someone else or to even say, have a teacher sort of take you under their wing and mentor you when you're in high school, right? All of these things that our lighter skinned counterparts, brothers and sisters might not even be aware of that are happening for them, right? The crowd sort of parts for a lot of people and they think, oh, just like when you talk about male privilege and men, when you talk about white privilege and white people, they feel like, oh, well, no, I worked really hard for all of this. You know, I, I got my education, I, you know, stayed up late and I filled out 50 applications and I did all the work. And I say, that's great. And I'm not discounting that. But if you were darker skinned and did the same exact level of work, put in the same exact level of effort, would you necessarily have the same results or the same outcome that you have now? And again, the research, I'm going back on the research because people will always, you know, question or cast doubt on these things. The research suggests that you would not have had the same level of opportunities or access to these jobs or career trajectories. I want to be very sensitive as I ask this because I'm going, you mentioned Kamala Harris. Do you think that if we had had a darker skinned man running for president, because you did, I remember in one of your talks, you mentioned Kamala Harris and President Obama. Do you think that we would have had the same outcome if a darker skinned man was running for president? No. I'm not saying a dark skinned man can't win. Sure. But. Again, when we talk about the level of barriers and hurdles that he might have to overcome, that's what we're talking about. It's not that dark-skinned people can't be successful because, you know, I mean, we look are. at Michelle. Look at you. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like, we out here doing it. But the difference is, you know, if a dark-skinned candidate is successful, what additional barriers have they had to overcome? What additional effort, what additional um, mitigations and navigating and negotiating did they have to do that a light-skinned person didn't have to do? And I saw a, a video recently of a dark-skinned woman saying that she was going up for a job and she had to do 10 interviews in order to get the job. And she had a lighter-skinned friend who opened up about the fact that she only had to do three interviews for the same position, right? And so that's what I'm talking about. It's not that, you know, dark-skinned people are doomed to just Absolutely. never be. <laughs> yeah, but you have greater, face greater discrimination. This has been a really good conversation. And I really love that we're having this conversation because I don't know if you remember, Miss Wanda, we had a very explosive post on the Sacramento Sister Circle, which is a Facebook group page with, I don't know, at this time, it was probably over 7,000 Black women from the greater Sacramento area where we talk about a lot of different things going on in our community. And the reason why I really love this conversation and that you're also bringing facts, Dr. Webb, is because I also feel like Black people don't understand colorism. And so we also convolute this conversation in ways that really do a disservice for us as a community. And I definitely have had workplace discrimination, colorism, because one of the things that happens with me is that when I walk in the door, you're going to see my Black self, my darker skin self. And so I'm already having to dispel stereotypes. I'm already having to make you feel comfortable about not just my 
experience or my education, but that I'm going to be a black person that you can feel comfortable to work with. And it's something that's very, very taxing on your, on your spirit, on your soul. And it has tainted my workplace experience because I'm a very opinionated. I love to have passionate conversations. And one of the things that I think also happens is that it's also displaced that you're angry or that, you know, you it's like all this big thing is everybody's kind of like scurrying away. One thing that happens and I have to mention this is because it happens even in my own community is that I have a really close friend and we have spirited conversations. We're not mad. We're not angry, but like people are scared because it's like, oh my God, are they going to fight? I'm like, what? We're having a very passionate conversation. It could be about politics. It could be about anything, but it's just like, there's this overwhelming, I see it in your eyes. And I'm one of those people that, I mean, I'm about dispelling stereotypes. I'm not going to do it because I'm trying to do it for you, but I'm I'm very much about being myself and being authentically myself. You see who I am. I'm black not only in skin color, but I'm also black in mind and thought and spirit and vibe. And so it's just really interesting to see how people have an issue with that and want to tone you down and want to make you more palatable for them and make them more comfortable. But that's not actually my job. And so I really am enjoying this conversation because we as a community have to get a better understanding of this because we need to understand how we play into the anti-blackness against ourselves. And then also being able to have this conversation about like, oh, um, you know, one of the things that happened in that conversation was, oh, well, I was bullied by dark-skinned people. Um, so what does that have to do with colorism? Like, stop it. Like, we bullying is bullying, right? Let's talk about the facts. And I love that you have the data and the information and really breaking this down because not only do we need to educate you know, other communities about colorism, because they also have colorism in their communities, we need to understand it as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm doing my little response emoji, the heart there. Um, so I like that, you know, you talked about having the the bullying experience, because that's kind of, you know, one thing I was trying, when I was trying to define colorism, why I was defined as a social system. And it's not just, just like a Black person can be mean to a white person, and that doesn't, you know, create an entire system of so-called reverse racism. You know, having, being mistreated or taught, you know, bullied by, you know, darker skinned people, like, you might say that that's wrong. You might say it's not nice. You might say they shouldn't do that. But you can't say it's creating an entire system set up to hold you back. And in fact, you know, because a lot of times I actually had one of my Instagram followers say, can you speak to the accusation that dark skinned women are just jealous, right? Because every time I, I talk about colorism so often, and I've heard it all, I've heard all the pushback, I've heard all the gaslighting, all the denial. And so one of the most popular ways to dismiss or derail a conversation and say, oh, well, you're just jealous, right? And so I was telling, you know, people over and over again, like, follow that thought to its most logical conclusion and say, what am I jealous of? You can't answer that question without exposing the fact that you are deeply colorist and or disproving your own point, right? And so also, if you think someone is jealous of someone, you're implying that there's a value there that I don't have, right? And so you can't make that accusation and simultaneously deny the problem, the systemic reality of colorism. And so what I want to say, if there are any light-skinned people listening, and I know, let me know if we have to go to break or anything, but if there are any light-skinned people listening, we don't owe you trust, right? We don't owe you to 
you know, be embraced or, you know, be a part of the sisterhood or to be a part of our friendship circle because, or if you do not acknowledge your privilege. So a lot of light-skinned people, they want to be completely embraced by, you know, darker-skinned people, and they want to deny the facts that colorism is a system that privileges and benefits them. We can't trust you to be a part of our community, to be in our sisterhoods, to be in our friendship circles, if you're in denial about the ways that you benefit from a system that harms me, right? And so if we want to repair the relationships amongst Black people, we need those who are more privileged in the system, whether it be because they are Black men or because they are lighter skinned or because they're skinny or, you know, all the various forms of being privileged in this society. We need us to stand in that and not gaslight those who are on the receiving end of these harmful and violent systems. That's good stuff. We are going to go to break, family, when we come back. More with Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism Healing. More with Christy Ketchum, founder of the Sacramento Sister Circle. We are having a conversation on colorism, family. It's not too late to tap in with a family or friend and tell them to hop on. Family, we'll be right back after this. Like what you hear? Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. And she's back, empowering women one conversation at a time. This is Full Circle with Miss Wanda. Welcome back to the fifth anniversary show of Full Circle. So happy that you have joined us. I hope you have tapped in with friends and family and told them to tune into this conversation. Make sure you're sharing it with your friends and family because this is a conversation that we need to continue having. We're talking colorism with my guest, Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism Healing. You can find her on all platforms at Colorism Healing. And I started to say Dr. Christy Ketchum. I don't know if I'm speaking something into existence or what. (laughs) Christy Ketchum, the founder of the Sacramento Sister Circle. You may know her uh, from her work in the community. I wanted to make sure that we had a well-rounded conversation about colorism. And I, I thought these two women were the perfect guests for this topic. We talked a lot in the first hour about what colorism looks like corporately. And I want to move more into the personal space. As you know, we started off the show talking about Dr. Webb's TED Talk, and I will share that on the Full Circle uh, social media pages. And her experience that she had at five years old when she heard family members speaking about her sister, who was lighter skinned, her five-year-old self said that's because she's light skinned. So she's already had that impact on her. And I want to talk about the impact that colorism has on our girls and young ladies and how can we empower them, like I said off the air during the commercial break, to not only wear the t-shirt or rock the pin that says my black is beautiful, but really own that their dark skin is beautiful. Let's talk about our girls and how we can support them. Well, I was talking in in the break specifically about my experiences working with Black girls, particularly in school districts. And I'm just going to be really honest. It's really heartbreaking because some of the things that our young girls are dealing with, at, and like in the fourth grade, are horrible. They're already dealing with racism. They're already dealing with misogynoir. They're already dealing with like incredibly, you know, traumatizing things. And for me, you know, facilitating conversations and having these conversations with them, it was just heartbreaking because I actually did not have that experience working at. I was raised by a single mom. She um, was a registered nurse. She was very intent on the way that she raised me. And so I have a very different experience than a lot of my folks of my same hue because she was very intentional on making sure that I was equipped 
to deal with the racism and the anti-blackness that I was going to be dealing with as a young woman. So, you know, I would come home and say, you know, mommy, Tiki won't play with me. And she would tell me in sometimes vulgar ways, like, forget about her and go play with somebody else. And I'm four years old and I'm asking like, well, I'm having a, a four-year-old problem and I, you're my mom and I'm thinking you can help me with this, but you're just telling me not to play with this person. But my feelings are hurt. I'm disappointed. Why don't you like me? Tiki also was of a lighter hue and we were in a school that was predominantly white. And so I'm like, we're both black in my opinion, right? So like, obviously we would be friends, but that's not actually always the case. And so I just was raised by a woman that really knew that I was of a darker hue, that people were going to have things to say about me. And so she made a really concerted effort to make sure that I had high self-esteem and confidence, something that I really, really pressed with some of my friends and some folks that reach out to me because they're saying, you know, I have a darker skin girls that I'm raising and their self-esteem, their confidence is really, really low. What do I do? And all I can talk about is the experience that I had with my mother who made a very concerted effort to make sure that I knew what to say when somebody called me a name. I knew when a boy was like, you're pretty for a black girl. Like I already knew, like, so what? I don't like you. You're not cute. You know, like I had the comebacks, I had the fortitude, I had, I was equipped. And I don't think that our girls and our parents are thinking about our girls in that way. And I think it's very harmful. I feel like I was like told about the real world. I was like, no, we won't wait until this happens to her. And she comes and tells me this experience. She really told me what to say to them. She'd be like, you tell them, tell them they mama. You know, like she just really don't play with Tiki. Go play with somebody else. I would come back and say, well, she's still not playing with me. I don't care. There's 30 other students in this class. Go play with somebody else. And at some point it clicks because you really understand like, you know what? I don't have to play with you, Tiki. I can go play with somebody else. My black self is enough. I am a good person. I am beautiful. Like you become to understand those things. And I wish that we as black women, especially darker women, got to feel that way at a younger age. And I really do believe it has made me the woman I am today. There's no room that I walk into where I feel inferior. There's no room that people don't understand and know that I'm confident, that I'm going to speak my mind, that I'm unapologetically me. And I know that that is a rarity because people will tell me, it's like, oh, yeah, like, but this is, shouldn't be a rarity. You know, I don't see it as a badge of honor. It's something that I definitely want to impart and give to the young women that I work with and even the women. Dr. Webb? I think I'll start, you know, by kind of building on, you know, what Christy was sharing about the role that parents play in what happens with our girls and with our children. Because we can we can even talk about like how it impacts boys and how they grew up to be colorist and harmful because they were told that they were ugly as dark-skinned boys, right? So now they want to date the white girl to compensate for that. But what I'm seeing, and I think Christy alluded to this, is that too many, too many Black parents have not healed themselves enough to then help their children, right, deal with and navigate these things like misogynoir and colorism. And so, like, my strategy is the both and. Like, yes, I'm going to talk with, to, about the children, but, you know, kind of like from a social work perspective, I can work with that child every day, but if I'm sending them back to a home that is anti-Black, and yes, Black parents can spread and perpetuate and teach anti-Blackness, right? If I'm sending them back to a home that's anti-Black, that is perpetuating colorism or favoritism amongst 
kids, right? Like, oh, the lighter skinned child is the preferred child or the good child or the smart child. So too many people have had experiences where their own parents of different skin tones have given them skin bleaching creams, have told them to stay out of the sun. You don't want to look too dark. You can't wear red lipstick, you know, because you're too dark or you need to marry a white man so that your children have a chance at being lighter, right? A lot of the negative things are coming from the parents. And unfortunately, not enough of us have had the opportunity to heal so that we don't perpetuate that towards the next generation, right? And a lot of people talk about, you know, if it wasn't my parents and it was my grandparents who were telling me these things. And so I also tell adults when they say, oh, we have to do more for children. We have to do more for kids. I was like, yes, directly to the kids. But if you have, for example, a teacher or a daycare provider or someone who makes children's TV shows or someone who writes children's stories, right? Like I'm also wanting to influence people who influence children because a lot of times, even when parents say, I, I tell my daughter she's beautiful every day, but she turns on the TV, she opens the coloring book, she opens the magazine, she watches this commercial, she looks at the dolls and the toys in the store, she looks at her classmates, she looks at her teacher, she looks at her friends, she looks at who becomes vice president of the country, right? And she's not seeing that message that I try to give to her, it's not reinforced in the rest of society, right? And that also speaks to, you know, lighter skinned people who say or tell stories about how they were bullied, right? That might be true. Like in that instance, you might have been teased or bullied or told, you you know, you think you're all that. But everywhere else you turn in your experience is going to validate and uplift and affirm your worth and your beauty as a lighter skinned person. Every TV show, every commercial, every movie, especially every Disney show or Disney movie, um, that things that are made for kids, things that are marketed to kids, you are just going to have confirmation and affirmation and, and people pouring into you as a lighter skinned person that can compensate and that can make up for any type of bullying you may have faced. Whereas a dark skinned person who's getting bullied or dark skinned person who's getting teased, they don't have as many places to turn to to refill their cup and to sort of repair the damage that has been done. And psychology tells us that for every negative piece of feedback we get, it takes four to six instances of positive feedback to overcome that. And so even for parents who are affirming their children, you have to realize the onslaught of negative anti-Black colorist messaging that they're receiving, it's not enough to just say one morning, you know, oh, you're beautiful, bye. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> like that one instance is not going to be enough to overcome the onslaught and the continuous onslaught, right? And that's the other thing when I talk to people about healing from colorism is that you're not healing from a one isolated incident. Every time you interact or interface with the world, you're likely to experience colorism again, right? It's quite possible that the next time you go to the grocery store, the next time you, you know, go to the movies, you might see that messaging. You're going to see that anti-Black messaging. And so we have to have this cyclical, ongoing process of repairing the damage that's being done. I, I liken it to hygiene rather than surgery, right? So surgery, you have a surgery once, you recover from it, and hopefully the problem is solved. The healing from colorism, solving colorism is more like brushing your teeth. You have to do it every day, twice a day. It's like washing your hands. You have to do it multiple times a day because the world is dirty. The world is dirty, AKA the world is colorist. The world is racist. The world is anti-Black. And so we have to have regular practices, regular routine habits for ourselves, 
Because again, hurt people hurt people. So if we as the adult, as the parent, as the aunt, as the grandparent, as the teacher, as the daycare provider have not dealt with our own internalized colorism, our own internalized anti-Blackness, we are going to hurt the next generation, even if we don't mean to. So we have to have build daily habits that help us start to remove the crud and the, the grind of the anti-Blackness that we face in the world. So how do we start? How do we start that? I mean, you're talking about healing for ourselves so that we can empower the next generation. But how do we even start when you've lived with this idea for 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70 and above years and you're grandparenting and parenting this next generation? How do we even start? Mm. So a lot of the feedback that I get and what I've experienced even in myself, right, is that you've already started if you're listening to this conversation, right? So I just want anyone who's listening, like you've already started simply by having the language, right? Like that is, you know, they talk about the crack that, you know, sort of grows. This is the crack to your healing. This is like the cracking that door open. And then once you start to gain momentum, you can bust it wide open, right? But it does start with that crack of having a name for it, and speaking about it and acknowledging it because the level of catharsis, it feels cathartic. People say, oh, I finally feel like I'm not being gaslighted. I'm not crazy. This wasn't something that was all in my head, right? So for a lot of people, if this is the first time they've had a, or heard people talking about colorism with any depth or nuance, this is already healing for them, right? And so one, start to talk about colorism and talk about your experiences of it. You have to say like, I've actually been hurt. Like I actually am anti-Black and that's hard to do. So the healing takes courage. You have to be willing to say, you know, oh yeah, I actually did prefer the light-skinned dolls when I was a kid, right? Not to shame yourself, not to start beating yourself up, not to, you know, start feeling guilty, but so that, because you can't address a problem that you won't acknowledge. So the very first step is what we're doing now, which is acknowledging the problem, acknowledging how we've been hurt, because we can't heal the hurt if we won't even look at it. And so that's, again, can be scary and hard and difficult, but that is the first step. I'll quickly give a second step because we're talking about children and influences and bullying. A second step that you have to gradually introduce over time is to do an audit of what's influencing you. So reflect on what are you watching? What music are you listening to? What podcasts and radio programs are you listening to? Who is talking in your ear, whether they be a friend or a family member, right? What um, spaces do you go to? And how many of those relationships and forms of media are sending you anti-Black messages? You have to look at that and say, oh, I gotta cut off this TV show. I can't listen to this comedian anymore. Yeah, I'm not going to step on some toes. I can't listen to the comedian anymore because they are anti-Black. Because yep. they prepare colorism. And so yep. you have to, once you start to eliminate that influence, then it frees you up to start to reprogram to something that's more healthy. I'd love to chime in on that. Go ahead. Yes, I totally agree. And one of the other things that I am intentionally thinking about is history. How do we share our history with our young people? I've also know that a lot of adults don't actually know their history and what people looked like that did some phenomenal things to advance our our culture and our community. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, like there are like there are women, you know, 
they talk about the mammy. There's also, you know, we could talk about them being the mammy, right? The being the black mom that everybody can just kind of like take from her and she's there for everybody. Like there's all these stereotypes, right? That we, we also play into in our community, but really understanding our history and knowing the people that came before us, I think is so important particularly talking about the people that are unsung, like they they never got any recognition, but they did more work for the people that were put in front or they were okay with working in the background because they were moving forward their people. And we just need to know our history. I just think if we knew our history, I think we would be more intentional. And it's really sad in my opinion, and I work with young people, that they don't know their history. They're still putting the same three, four people in front of us. And we're still mm-hmm. chiming in, speaking about those same three, four people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that my mom also did, I'm giving my mother, let me give her her shout out, Patricia, Patricia Franklin. Every time I had a, a report, it was a, it could be a science project. It could be a history project. I was looking up somebody that was from my culture. I know about Shirley Chisholm when I was a young woman. I did a report on her. She really encouraged me to make sure that I knew the people that came before me and that forged our, forged the past for us to be where we are today. I think the other thing for me is calling it out. I, I mean, like if I see it, we're gonna have a conversation about it. Like I said, I'm a very passionate person. We're just gonna have a discussion, right? And I find those that don't wanna have the conversation, I really find that they really are not comfortable within themselves within this conversation. And so you talking about like identifying that there is an issue, that there's a problem, that I might be perpetuating this. I also feel like we have to bring to the forefront of this conversation is white supremacy. Like we buy into white supremacy and the assimilation of thinking that the more adjacent we are to white, the better off we'll be, the better our life will be, the more people will, you know, feel comfortable with us. I've heard several black men talk about me. Like, I don't want people to be scared of me. And I'm like, what? Like, you don't want them to be scared of you. Like, that's the least of my problems, of you being uncomfortable and scared of me. Like, we got to get out of this mode of trying to make other people feel comfortable about who we are. I just have to say this because they just have been feeding my soul this week. The young women from the LSU basketball team, I'm posting everything that they're posting. I'm looking at every video. I've been watching these young ladies, especially the young lady Flo John. She was a rapper, a young rapper on a, on a TV show um, a couple of years ago. I also looked at her as someone that I wanted to follow as a younger black woman of darker hue that was a rapper. She's a basketball player. Like she's living her best life. This young lady's a freshman in college and she's just won her championship. She has a thriving rap career. She's as chocolate as they come and she's confident. And like, I love it. I want us to see ourselves in those ways. And I think the more that we see ourselves in those ways and we make sure that the rooms and the spaces that we're in have blacker, darker skinned people in the room. Like I'm always like, you know, like, oh my goodness, you're beautiful. I say that to all our black girls anyway, but I'm making sure that I go out of my way to make sure you see and know that I see your black self over there because we don't get enough of that. And like you said, Dr. Webb, we're constantly having to deal with that every single day, which is why I always give credit to my mom because when I came home with some of those things that were happening to me, and as a child, you don't even really understand what's happening to you. You're just like, well, I don't understand. I didn't really do 
anything. I don't think I did anything. What is the issue? And so when you have someone that can support you, that can help you understand and navigate the racism, the anti-blackness, the misogyny, like all of these things, it really does help. And so I do encourage parents to do a better job of that and deal with their own issues so that they can be better examples for their children. But I also feel like we need to call it out. Like if you see something that's not right, especially around colorism and like just making sure I try to educate people first that's my first thing it's like okay did you understand do you understand this happen right and then if they're open to it we can have further conversations but if they're not open to it then I'm not gonna let it slide I gotta let you know like I gotta call it out like I have to be unapologetic and making sure that I am doing my part to educate and show people something different because if we don't then you know, we're going to continue to do the same things and perpetuate the same things that have been happening decades. This is such a wonderful conversation. I just wrote down dismantling the notion of colorism as a family. Have the conversation. That's the first place that you can start family is having that conversation about what's realistic to you. What have you gone through? What are you experiencing and what do you notice about yourself? Again, not to shame. I'm echoing Dr. Webb and Christy, not to shame yourself, but to start to acknowledge so that you can change. We are going to take a super quick break. When we come back, I want to talk about one of those influences Dr. Webb mentioned, and that is the impact of media on this conversation. Keep it right here, family. We'll be right back after this quick break. It's full circle. Empowerment through conversation that starts with you. Tell us what topics you want to hear. Drop us a line at fullcircle975 at gmail.com. Back with Miss Wanda, life coach, motivational speaker, and friend of sisters everywhere. This is Full Circle. Family, this is a wonderful conversation. Happy birthday, Full Circle. This is the Full Circle fifth anniversary show. And what a great conversation to have, recognizing five years of conversation. You know the tagline, empowerment through conversation. This is a safe space for women of color, for black women, to have the conversations that we want to have that are important to us, and this is one of them. I'm having a conversation today with my guest, Dr. Sarah Webb, founder of Colorism healing and christy ketchum founder of the sacramento sister circle we are talking colorism share this episode with other folks because this is how we start the healing before we went to the break we were talking about the impact of colorism on our girls and one of the things that dr webb mentioned that i want to kind of circle back to is the influence of media on our girls and on us in general how does media play a part now i know dr webb you recently spoke on a, a panel in hollywood addressing colorism in the movies um and you also had a very interesting take on the oscars and Woman King versus um, Wakanda Forever. So with that, I'm going to give you the floor to talk about what does that look like, though, the impact of colorism that we see in the film and TV industry. How does that impact us? Because this is the place where our girls, ourselves, as, as black women, are getting a lot of the influences, media, social media, et cetera. And so what does that look like in terms of colorism in Hollywood, TV, movies, et cetera? Yeah, so we could spend the whole two hours just on this topic, so I'm going <laughs> to squeeze in as much as I can. Okay. Before I do, I'm going to take 
the privilege of having the mic right now to backtrack to something Christy said about not letting it go, calling things out and speaking up. I just want to inform listeners that speaking up is not always about changing the person's mind who said something or who did something because like Christy mentioned sometimes they're obstinate and they don't want to change they don't want to know but you still have to speak up one to let it be put on record where you stand and then two because everyone else also needs to hear someone speak up right and so if they're doing something to a child or saying something to a child say something in that moment because even if that adult doesn't change that child is going to remember that someone spoke up for them right that's they need to see that oh okay you know dr webb or christy or miss wanda like they disagreed with that comment and they spoke up about it right and that could impact people in ways you might not ever know in your lifetime but to more to your point and this is also i thought of this also as christy was talking Sometimes you have to be the representation you want to see. And so we know that for the majority of mass media, the majority of like the film industry, thinking about the history of film, the history of TV, the history of the music industry even, people who look like us have not been in control for the vast majority of that legacy, right? But now more than ever in history, we as dark-skinned Black women and people who identify in various ways have the ability to show up in spaces and to be a part of media creation so that we can start to create those representations that we missed when we were younger, right? So that we can be that positive, affirming, complex, dynamic representation, A, that we still need as adults, but two, that some other dark-skinned girl might need. And so when I started my blog, you know, over a decade ago, that's what I was thinking. I was like, I would have loved to see someone like me talking about this when I was younger, right? So can I be that for the 16-year-old girls today? Can I be that for the eight-year-old girls today? And you don't even have to have a social media account to do it. I tell people every time I walk down the street, people are seeing a happy, you know, like Christy said, a confident, dark-skinned Black woman with an Afro, and that does something, right? And so one of the things that we can do to take our power back from the influence of media is to show up as ourselves, as dark-skinned Black women, and our, you know, happiness, and our joy, and our success, and our motivation, and like just the, all the ways we naturally are inclined to show up and let ourselves be seen, right, on our terms, because that is representation that matters. Now, speaking to media specifically, like I mentioned, a lot of the mainstream media companies and mainstream media channels, whether it be you know radio, music, film, television, magazines, publishing, are still, even to this day, majority owned by white companies and white corporations who only care about a dollar, right? There's like, you know, if this diversity and inclusion stuff is going to make me more money, then bring it on. But otherwise, I ain't trying to hear it, right? And so what we have seen is that even when a Black creator, in too many cases, too many instances, even when Black creators, even when Black channels or Black movies are created, they're still pandering to that mindset of we're just trying to make money. We ain't trying to actually make a change, right? And so that's why it's so hard and so um, detrimental sometimes is because we can't even count on um, a Black producer or a Black director or a Black writer. We can't even count on them to represent us well. And so that was my point about, you know, the Oscars, the woman king versus like Wakanda forever, because my one of my posts that went viral was talking about the bald headed jokes in Wakanda forever. And my, you know, gut reaction was Wakanda forever was positioned as like the pinnacle of black representation. It's 
of all the movies ever created, like this was like life changing. And oh my gosh, finally, black movies, black directors, all these beautiful black actresses and actors. And like, it's, you know, being shot and portraying Africa in such a beautiful light. And yet, even in something like that, we see anti-blackness and misogynist war taking place. And that just, I think, gutted me, right? And like, it's so discouraging to know that if this movie is supposed to represent the pinnacle of black representation, and even it perpetuates this form of misogynist war and anti-blackness against dark-skinned black women specifically, then where do we turn? Where do we turn to, right? And then I also, you know, I have a lot of other different ideas, but I want to kind of elevated above just specific films and specific TV shows and thinking about, again, when we have representation, it's not just about the quantity of representation, it's also about the quality of representation, right? So, so often when we talk about changing the narrative and changing representation, we, we say, oh, well, there was a dark-skinned woman in that show, or oh, there was a dark-skinned woman in that movie, but what's the narrative that is playing out for her, right? What's the the storyline? What is the characterization of her in that film? Does she actually get to have a story? Does she actually get to change and evolve? Does she get to have a love interest or not, right? Does she get to be successful or does she have to always be um, struggling or, you know, impoverished or addicted to drugs in, in some way? And so we have to not just put dark-skinned people in movies, dark-skinned Black women in movies, we also have to start changing the way we see what we imagine for dark-skinned Black women, right? And so, you know, you you mentioned off-air, off the the video I did with my top 14 movies of move, movies that feature dark-skinned Black women as love interests. And what I see a lot of times is that people can't imagine someone falling in love with a dark-skinned Black woman. To use a more specific example, I was recently watching the TV show Your Honor, and I was like super happy about this, you know, beautiful, gorgeous, great actress who's in the film. She's a dark-skinned woman. She's playing this New Orleans queen pin, essentially, right? So one, she's the only dark-skinned woman in the whole TV show, right? I think it's two series now. She's the only dark-skinned woman in the TV show, right? And she's a drug dealer, right? Okay, that in and of itself doesn't have to be the end of the world, but all the light-skinned, there are multiple light-skinned women, and they get to be lawyers, they get to be district attorneys, they get to be jazz singers, right? And then there are other non-Black women as well who get to be a variety of things. And so you have one person representing dark-skinned women, and you're making her the criminal, right? You're making her an antagonist. But then also the portrayal of her in the relationship, right? I'm gonna break down the specific scene. So she's um, a lesbian in the TV show and her partner is this very, very light-skinned jazz singer. And so we have scenes where she, the darker-skinned woman is looking at her light-skinned partner and saying, oh, you're perfect. Or you're, don't worry your little pretty face about it. But the light-skinned partner never compliments the dark-skinned actress, right? And so it's little things like that. When I tell y'all, I wish I didn't see all this stuff I wish my mind was not turned on sometimes because I could just watch TV shows and watch movies and not see it. But it's like two seconds of a script, but it matters, 
in terms of how you're positioning the darker skinned woman as pursuing this lighter skinned woman. And the darker skinned woman is fawning over this lighter skinned woman. And the light skinned woman is like, oh, I don't really want you. I, I know you proposed to me, but I don't really want to marry, right? So setting up this narrative of desirability, right? And setting up this narrative of value. And so it's really, really insidious, Miss Wanda. And I feel like, I hope I didn't lose people <laughs> because I kind of went in a lot of different directions. But I just want people to understand one last thing too many people say oh it's just entertainment you're being too serious about this it's just entertainment i want to tell people that entertainment is actually the most effective form of brainwashing because if i knew you were trying to brainwash me if it was explicit that you were trying to brainwash me i would have my barriers up i would say no you can't brainwash me stop trying to do that but when it's just a joke when it's just a song when it's just a tv show well, that's innocent, right? And so you let your guard down. You let your barriers down when it's quote unquote just entertainment. And so what white colonizers have known for centuries is that when we lull you into thinking that, you know, oh, it's just for fun or it's just a commercial, then that's precisely the best way to insert these white supremacist, capitalist, anti-Black patriarchal narratives. Okay, I got to stop. <laughs> no, no, you are good. That is so good. And as you were saying that, it really did sink in with me, you know, especially when you're talking about the, the television shows and things like that, you know, how we binge watch, right? So... Netflix drops a whole season of XYZ show with a with a premise that is similar or the show that you're talking about, right? And so we're constantly for six, seven hours as we're binge watching this, feeding ourselves with that stereotype or those narratives. And and not just this, but in, in general, right? You, you know, and that's how influential entertainment is. And you're right, we don't think about it. We'll just binge. Well, I just binge watched a whole season of XYZ and not realizing the impact that it's really having on me, on my psyche and my belief system and all of those things, how I'm showing up because I'm this thing is being reinforced over and over again. Christy. I love you were not you were right on point. You were not all over the place, Dr. Webb. You were right mm -hmm. on point. Yeah. I am the same way, but I think because you're like a scholar activist and you know, like you've been studying this, like you, it's probably wor way worse, but I do the same thing with all the TV shows that I watch, all the things that I participate in. Like you, like we talked about the calling out of it. It's like, I'm constantly on guard with that. And I'll just bring it back to my childhood again. I remember being a child in a predominantly white school and being the darker skin in the at the school at the school really just not even just beyond my classroom but at the school and being very very intent on making sure that people did not disrespect me and call me out of my name and you know the name that I'm talking about and so I feel like that is something that I wear all the time and as a child, I had to reconcile with like, I had to be hard. I had to be like, I didn't get a chance. I definitely had a great childhood. I won't take away from that because one thing that my mother was again, did intentionally is that I had that white space, but I also had equally black spaces where I could be myself and I can identify with the people that were in the room. And I didn't spend all my time in these white spaces without having that reinforcement in my black community. I'm saying all this to say, because I too really, really enjoy watching like black actresses that have been able to really rise above the stereotypes like Viola Davis, 
I love Gabrielle. Um, she played Precious. Ever since she played that part, I feel like she's been doing an excellent job of making sure that she didn't get like stuck in that one role. I love her. I love Lupita. Like I love being able to see ourselves on screen being beautiful, looking different. They all have different. Some wear weaves, some have natural hair, some have a bald head. Like it is important for us to be able to see these different images. It's important for us to be able to see ourselves. If people don't see themselves in the greatest light, then how do you how do we make people feel good about themselves? And I, I love that you said um the brainwashing because the brainwashing is so intense. It is so intentional. And it is just so pervasive. And again, that's why I feel like we have to have these conversations in our community first, because we're asking white people to do things that we're not even doing in our own community. And that ain't okay to me. It's not okay. So I really just love that we're having this conversation. And I think being woke and having this lens of understanding what it is, I think it's important. My mom gets upset with me all the time when watching TV. She's like, oh, Christy, it's not this. Because, you know, I'll talk about like, the the light the light skin um privilege on potomac of the real i i love watching all of the real i'm sorry i love reality tv i watch everything i watch the i'm from the documentary to the most ratchet thing on tv i'm watching it <laughs> and i'm also watching it from the lens and i'm also realizing that our young people and young women are watching these shows too and so if i know what they're talking about i can then talk about some of the things that we're talking about today around colorism and just really make sure that we're looking at things from a lens. I am, you know, again, I'm, I'm on, on another trajectory, so I, I can enjoy the show and, and still see some of the things that are happening that, you know, perpetuate the colorism and the anti-blackness. But I do also think that we should be able to have the conversations about those things as well and really use those for me and what, what I do with my youth leadership that I do with when young people I work with is I use those as examples and opportunities to have further discussion. Oh, family, this has been so, so good. I hate to break the news to you. We got six minutes left on the show. Oh, my gosh, this has been so wonderful. Family, let's continue the conversation online. Follow both of these women on social media and let's continue the conversation. Also, make sure you're following Full Circle. But I want to make sure that you know how to interact with Dr. Webb how you can hear her. She does a live every Monday morning, um, how you can interact with her, work with her, etc. So Dr. Webb, go ahead and take it away. How can people find you and interact with you? Colorismhealing.com is the most secure way to, you know, find out who I am and what I'm about and how you can work with me. But also I spend a lot of time on Instagram at Colorism Healing as well. And that is a lot of fun. So if you want to have some fun with me, <laughs> Instagram is a good place to go. And then I do do live. So if you want to see see me talk live about these various forms and aspects and the many nuances of colorism and also ask questions and leave comments, I go live every Monday at noon central time. That would be 10 a.m. in California. Um, and yeah, so it's again, I'm on this series called Corporate Colorism specifically. So tag your boss, tag your manager if you feel comfortable doing that or if you yourself are a supervisor then definitely tune in for this current series. And definitely we'll be doing that. Christy, how can people find and work with you, support what you're doing out here in the community in the Sacramento Sister Circle? Yes, so you can find um, the Sacramento Sister Circle on Instagram 
at Sack Sister Circle on IG. We have a website, which is www.ourrightfulplace.com written out completely yeah and we're definitely trying to go outside of the greater sacramento area i i just came back from ghana um we're doing a cultural exchange with a group of women that i met while i was there on the 23rd we do now have membership with our rifle place so if you want to be a part of the speaker series and some of the things that we're doing um that is incorporating folks from all over the world definitely go to our website to find out more and our instagram page family let's continue this conversation don't forget healing starts with acknowledgement so once you acknowledge the things that you you know have allowed to happen or your perspective in regards to color and colorism that's how the healing can start again it's not a bashing thing it's not a condemnation it's just we can heal once we start to acknowledge family thank you so much for spending five years with me we've got five plus five times five divided by five more years to go keep it right here for more and more engaging conversations thank you so much for listening show love to everyone you meet and i'll talk to you next week peace fam this has been full circle follow our facebook page at full circle 97.5